0: Well, good evening, everyone. It's good to have you here. And uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 6. We are making our way through the book of Acts. And uh, as you're doing that, first of all, just uh, say thank you. Many of you have been praying for our family over the last month and um, been praying for Christopher and his health. And things are kind of very, very slowly, uh, but hopefully very surely um, improving a little slower than we had hoped for. And uh, he's not really out of the woods yet, but we'd encourage and appreciate your prayers for him. And just thanks for um, all of your uh, encouraging words and and kindness during this time. Uh, While you're turning to Acts chapter six, I'm gonna tell you a story. So I... um, well, so I guess this happened on Thursday. So I, I put Christmas lights on my house, and I don't know how you put lights on your house, but we have a kind of a, a hip roof all the way around, so we have gutters all the way around. And um, so I bought these clips, and you put the clips on the gutter, right? Anyone do that? And then the really cool thing is then all the lights are exactly the same space apart, and they all stick out at exactly the same angle. Just really, Monk would be proud. And so it's just perfect all along the house, so I put those on my house, and it just you know looked really good and really liked it. And then um, on Thursday, somebody thought it would be really funny on my Facebook page to, to post that they really liked my lights, but that one of them was crooked, and they weren't going to tell me which one. And I'm not going to say who it is, because I don't want to stoop to their level. Um, but uh, um, if you're listening on the web, his name is Barrett. Hendrickson. And, uh, and so Barrett thought it would be really funny to, uh, to put that on. So I just thought I'm going to be, you know, the better man than him. And I'm not going to let it bother me. And I'm just going to ignore him. Just ignore him. And so I ignored him on Thursday. And every time I drive by the you know, kind of pull out of the driveway, try not to look. And when I come in, try not to look. And then, um, and then there a, a woman, a friend of ours who also goes to church here, came by to pick her daughter up yesterday. And when she did... She was, in fact, I'm not going to name her either, but you might be able to figure out who it is. Um, She said as she was leaving, I really like your lights. And by the way, I know which light it is. And she ran to her car and took off. And so I had to come to uh, run some errands in the evening. And when I was coming home, uh, it it was at night. It was dark. The lights were on. And so I drove really slow. And I was looking at my house. And I was like boy, I can't tell which one it is. And so I pulled in the garage and I just really bothered me. So I, I came out and I'm just kind of walking along the house and all our kids are gone. Just my wife's inside. She doesn't even know what I'm doing. I'm looking at the lights and I'm like, finally, I'm like, I think it's that one. I can't really tell, but I think it's that one. And I, but we have a daylight basement, so it's, it's kind of high. And I didn't want to get the ladder out because that seemed kind of, you know, ridiculous and too much work. And I, and I didn't want to get on the roof because it was freezing. and That didn't seem like a smart move. So I went in my garage and I'm like, what could I use? And I found a, um, a uh, retractable metal pole. And I thought, well, oh, I could just nudge it, you know, with the metal pole. So I went out and I extended the pole. And I was just going to nudge the clip. And so I was trying to nudge it, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't, it wouldn't move. So the only thing left was I'm like, I'm going to have to actually push against the light itself. And I just, I was just really focused. So I'm, I've got a metal pole and I'm pushing on this Christmas light. I'm trying to push it up. And I finally got it. I nudged it. It was perfect. I'm like, yes. And I stepped back and realized that now the one next to it had moved and it wasn't, it wasn't straight. And so I went over and I'm, trying to push that one, and I, and I got that one, and then the next one, you know, you could see where I'm going, and I thought, well, eventually I'll get to the end of the house, and everything will be straight, and so I get the metal pole, and I'm pushing on the light that's on, when suddenly, you know, just a little voice just said, put the pole down, you know, like, don't be like Pastor Bill, okay, Res- <laughs> Respect the light. Put the pole. So I, you know how when you, because it suddenly struck me like, I wonder what would happen if I broke that light and my metal pole can, I'm not an electrician, um, but I thought it might not be good, so I put the pole down and then you know how you have that moment where you kind of look around to see if anybody's watching you? And I'm like, I'm, I can imagine all my neighbors in the house looking out the window with their hands on the phone and they've already dialed 9-1, you know, <laughs> they're just, oh, I put the pole down and, uh, and I put it back in the, in, in, the garage and my lights aren't perfect, but they're close enough. But here's why I tell you the story, because when you're trying to solve a problem, and this is really what we're gonna, what we're going to talk about tonight. When you're trying to solve a problem, make sure that you come up with a solution that doesn't make the problem worse. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight in Acts chapter 6 as we talk about the early church. We're calling this Extreme Acts. It was written by a guy named Luke. Luke was not a disciple of Jesus that we know if he never met Jesus when Jesus was on this earth. He came along a little bit later. He was a doctor, a physician. He was a historian. Luke was a guy who uh, spent some time with some of the disciples and interviewed them and wrote a book that was in two volumes. And we call the first volume, The Gospel of Luke. And the second volume is the book of Acts. And Acts is kind of an extreme book about an extreme movement. We call it the early church. And we've been talking in this series about how the church was born and how the church grew. You know, the original church, as we talked about, Right before Pentecost, was about 120 people. And we're told that after Jesus ascended, they gathered together on a daily basis for 10 days and they prayed together. And on the 10th day, when they were praying together, we, we had the day of Pentecost. Remember that story? And there's the sound of the wind and the, the, the tongues of fire that come down. And, and these people start speaking in different languages. And Peter got up and he preached a sermon. And on that day, when the church started, there's about 120 of them. But in verse 41 of that story, it says, but those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 people were added that day. In one day, in just one church service, the church went from about 120 to 3,120. It tells us a little bit later in that same chapter and the Lord was adding to their number daily. Day by day, people were being added to the church. In chapter four, it goes on and says, many who heard the message believed and the number of men grew to about 5,000. So there's 5,000 men plus women and children when the church is now, in a matter of weeks, up to about ten to twenty thousand people. Just like that, tells us in chapter five that, in despite that, despite the um, persecution of the church, nevertheless more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. And so we've been talking about this church, this movement. It was amazing. God's power was amazing in them, but the church was not perfect. The church was not. Pure, And it can be so easy for us to start to romanticize what happened in this book. And I think Luke wants to make sure that that we don't do that. So I want to read for you our passage this evening, and we're going to talk about a problem that the church had. You can see it in your notes, in your Bible, or up on the screen. In verse 1 it says this, now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews. So there's, there's two groups of people in the church because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve, the apostles, summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And the statement found approval with the whole congregation. And so they chose Stephen, a man of faith and, and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, and Nicanor, uh, Timon, Permenus, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them." And the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of their priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So we have this church, and, and, and this church is growing, and it's, a, it's an amazing movement It's full of power, it's full of energy, it's full of miracles that are taking place, but it wasn't perfect. Uh, Three weeks ago, we looked at the story of Ananias and Sapphira. So we know that not everyone in the church was pure. Not everyone in the church had, had perfect motives. And we know that some people had issues and they brought them with them into the church. Some people came to the church and they brought pride with them. And they kind of set, you know, that kind of got in the situation and messed things up. Some people came to church with greed. And some people in that early church were selfish. And and if you read in the New Testament, you'll read that some people came into the church with their sexual sin and immaturity, and even, as we'll see tonight, prejudice. And and here's the thing that I think Luke would say to us. All of those issues just tell us that the church 2,000 years ago was a lot like the church today. At Gateway, for instance, we can see um, God working. We see people getting saved, getting baptized, we see lives being changed and people growing. We see God answering prayer and the love of God. But I think most of us would, would readily admit that we also know as a church, we're not perfect. And we all have issues that we bring in here. I think that's safe to say we all have issues. And when we gather together, they all to some degree kind of mesh in with us. And, and sometimes it's pride or selfishness or, or greed or envy. Now, there are many good things in our church, but there's some, there's some stuff that's messed up too. It's, it's mixed But that's what makes us like the early church, not unlike the early church. And I think Luke is warning us not to idolize or or romanticize that first church. Now, I say that because today you can read all sorts of authors who go back and, and they kind of idolize the, the, the first church and how perfect it was. And you'll hear people say, oh, I wish, I wish our church was like the church was 2,000 years ago. And I wish I just lived back then. And I wish I could just be in that church because it was so perfect and so much better. And I think Luke would come along and say, time out. You, you don't understand. You're kind of romanticizing the situation. The church had some real problems at, back then just like it does today. Or some people who idolized the church, you know, in the 1500s. People be like, oh, I wish I wish the church was like it was in the 1500s and we could just have the organ back and we could just have the hymns back that we used to have it was so much better then. Or people think, I wish the church was, you know, like it was when I was a kid. And and we did church like we did back then and had programs and sermons and songs and Sunday school. Or I wish our church was like the church where I used to live. And it's so easy for us after a while to idolize the church, the church of years ago or the church of yesterday. Or sometimes we can idolize churches in other places. And I think to do this is to deny the work of God that he's doing today. When we idolize the church of the past, or the church of 40 years ago, or the church of 2,000 years ago, it's like telling God, God, you did a really good job back then, but I don't think you're really building the church anymore. And I don't think you're growing your kingdom anymore. But in fact, the Bible tells me that God is growing His kingdom. And God is purifying His church. And it's so easy for us sometimes to think that the the church grass is always greener somewhere else. When... uh, a uh, few years ago, the first time that uh, I got to go to Nicaragua, and we have some Nicaraguan people here with us tonight. Hey, guys. And so you, Yes. Yeah. So you might think this is funny, but see, I, before I went to Nicaragua, I heard lots of stories about Nicaragua. And Nicaragua sounded like it was about as close to heaven as you could get. Because I, I heard that the church was poor, but I heard they were, everybody was so amazing and so generous and so spiritual. And so the first time I went to Nicaragua, what I found was that there's, there's a lot of genuine faith in Nicaragua. And there's a lot of growth and love and there's amazing generosity in the church in Nicaragua and passion and boldness. But I've also heard some stories too. Is the church in Nicaragua perfect, do you think? Mm, Maybe not. Maybe not. So I heard some stories. When I was in Nicaragua, I saw some things. I saw that there's some immaturity and some selfishness and some pride, and it made me think the church in Nicaragua is a lot like the church here. God's doing some amazing things, God's building a church, working miracles, but it's not perfect. And sometimes when I read about the church in China, the underground church and what's happening there or the church in Muslim countries and and what it costs people to be a part of that, again, it's easy to romanticize that. But I think Luke would come along and say, when we hear about what God's doing in other places, we should rejoice and we should thank God for that. But we should also be realistic and assume that it's the church like the church has always been. And they need our prayers because there's issues. And so we need to pray for them. They're just like us. And they're just like the early church. And the church has always had obstacles to overcome. And in this passage, we see one of the obstacles they had to overcome and how they responded to it. So let's look at that and let's look what they did when they had this problem. The first thing I want you to notice is that in the church, when they had a problem in that first church, they confronted that problem. So again, let's look in verse 1 and see what the problem was. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing, so the church is growing and God's doing good things, Uh, "...a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews." So we have two groups of people that are identified in the church. The first is what we would call the Hellenistic Jews. And the second uh, are what they call in this passage the, the native Hebrews... So if you're taking notes, the Hellenistic Jews are Jews that would have been born or raised outside of the Holy Land, um, and they eventually immigrated to Israel after a while. Now, for some of them, they might have been born and raised maybe for generations had gone by where their family didn't live in Israel, but then eventually they moved back, they immigrated back. To the Holy Land. Now, these people were were Greek speaking people, so when they would come back to Israel and they would go to a synagogue on the weekend, they would worship in a Greek speaking synagogue. And we're told that there was a large number of widows who were Hellenistic Jews. There's a couple reasons why that was probably true. One is because we know that, that later in life, um, sometimes Jewish couples would move back to the Holy Land or sometimes widows were because they believed, without getting into a lot of weird stories, they, they believed that there were benefits to being buried in the Holy Land. Um, so they would often move back later in life. And sometimes when the husbands would pass away, most of the time the, wi- the women were left destitute. And so there would be all of these, these widows who lived there and oftentimes they had no family. So there's a lot of, of these widows in the church and then there's the native Hebrews. Now, the native Hebrews were those who were born and raised in the Jewish homeland. Uh, they would speak Greek because you had to speak Greek in order to really function in the Roman society back then. But when they worshipped on the weekends, they would go to Hebrew-speaking synagogues as, a pro- as opposed to the, the Hellenistic Jews who would go to a Greek-speaking synagogue and the uh, native Hebrews really looked down on people who worshiped in Greek and they, they kind of felt like they were better and that the other group had compromised. So there's this, there's this division in the church of some people who thought they were better than other people in the church based on the language that they spoke. And in Acts chapter 2, we saw how in the early church, they began to care for the poor, for, for widows and for orphans through food distribution but apparently, due to the ethnic division in the church, these, these widows who were Hellenists were being overlooked. There was prejudice, apparently, and there was discrimination. So we're told that the native Hebrews were being taken care of better and fed better than the non-native ones. And so we're told that the Hellenists began to complain. Gagousmos is the, is the Greek word for complain, and it means a discontented murmuring or a secret whispering behind someone's back. So these are not women who are coming to Peter and saying, you know, we think maybe we have a problem here. They weren't doing that. They were just kind of whispering and murmuring and, and gossiping behind people's backs. In verse 2, it tells us this. So the 12 summoned the the full number of the disciples. So they got everybody together. And they didn't ignore the problem. They didn't try to cover it up. Even when the complainers were not complaining in a constructive manner, they called an all-church business meeting. Now, I don't know how many people came to the business meeting. I don't know if it was like one of ours. Uh, If it was, there's maybe... 10,000 people in the church, so that means probably 50 people showed up. I'm not sure, but they, I don't know. So they had a business meeting, and they just, they were going to confront the problem, and they were going to solve the problem. And what I thought of when I, when I imagined that first church business meeting was the fact that it's not always easy in a large group of people to figure out what the facts really are and what the problems really are. Um, because when you get a, a, a big group of people together, You've got some people who just have different personal opinions, right? And different points of view and, and imperfect attitudes. And sometimes you have people who can really identify what a real problem is. And then sometimes you have people and, you know, they're just the real problem. And it's really hard sometimes to tell what's what. And if a church is going to grow, though, they've, they've got to perceive what the problems are. They need to identify them and, and confront them in a spiritually mature manner. And, and don't misunderstand me, okay? This is not a license for everyone to start griping and, and complaining and murmuring, all right? This is about the church uh, making itself a better place where Jesus' message and his love can shine brightly. So this passage doesn't encourage us to complain and murmur, but it does encourage us to confront the real issues. But sometimes you have people who just like to complain. And I I heard, actually, I I was listening to a um, Catholic priest yesterday uh, speaking, and he told this story. I thought it was actually a good story. I don't quote Catholic priests very often. But he said there was this guy, and he wanted to go on a spiritual journey, and so he decided to join a monastery. And so he went to this monastery where he became a monk. And the head monk there said, so if you belong to this monastery, you have to take a vow of silence. And uh, so every five years, you get to speak two words. So five years go by and he doesn't speak a word for five years. And at the end of five years, the, uh, the, the senior monk comes up and says, so you've been here five years and, you know, do you have anything to say? And he said, bed hard. And so, the, you know, the, the senior monk was like, oh, I didn't know your bed was hard. I'm so sorry. And we'll get that taken care of and get you a better mattress. And so another five years go by. And now it's been 10 years. And uh, the monk comes up and says, well, you know, you've been here 10 years now and you get two more words, anything to say? And he says, food cold. He's like, oh man, this has been a rough 10 years, a hard bed and cold food. We'll, we'll definitely get that taken care of. So another five years go by. Now he's been there 15 years. And so the uh, senior monk sits down with me and says, You've been here 15 years now. And you get another two words, anything to say? And he says, I quit. <laughs> to which the senior monk says, Well, I'm not surprised. All you've done is complain ever since you got here. But <laughs> thank you. So what do they do in a situation? The first thing they do is they confront the problem. And the second thing they do is they affirm they affirm priorities. Now this is something we may not think of when we think about a church trying to solve problems. but But this problem actually threatened the church in two ways. And it's not always obvious when you first read it. Here's the first way that this was a threat. Because there was discrimination in the church. And so that was hurting the church's reputation. And the church needed to deal with the discrimination. But there was a second problem they had to deal with and that is that they might try to solve the problem by doing the right thing in the wrong way and that could have hurt the church even more than the original problem we we see that in verse 2 notice what the, the disciples say and the 12 summoned the full number of disciples and this is what they said to them and it's so interesting they said it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables now that sounds kind of defensive doesn't it It's like they're going to have an all church business meeting and everyone gets together and Peter stands up and here's what he says. I don't think it's a wise thing for me to be waiting on tables. So apparently somebody must have suggested to Peter, hey, these widows are not being taken care of. And so it would probably be good if you guys, if you apostles did that yourself and you could go to their homes and and you could cook their food and you could do that, you know? So the initial problem here is discrimination in the church. But there's a deeper potential problem, and that is that they might try to solve the problem in a way that only makes things worse. So now, in and of itself, it's a great idea that the apostles would take care of widows. In fact, in James chapter 1, it says this religion that God our Father accepts is pure and flawless Is this. Notice, to look after orphans and widows. So it would have been great for the apostles on a personal level to go in and to wait on the tables of, of widows. It would have been a good, humble experience for them. The problem is, it would have been a big mistake for the church. We know as we study the New Testament, that teaching the Word of God is a priority that was given to us by Jesus himself. In Matthew 28, in fact, Jesus said this, Therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, and you're probably familiar with this, and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Watch, and and what? And teaching them, so he says, I want you to go and I want you to teach people to obey everything that I have commanded you. And as you read the New Testament, what you discover is there are several layers of, of teaching that take place in the church. For instance, every believer is, is asked to proclaim the gospel to the world around them. And that's one level of teaching that every one of us can take part in, to, to take the words of Jesus and to proclaim them to people around us. But as we read the New Testament, we also discover that God has gifted some people in the church to be teachers who instruct and inform and equip, and that's their God-given priority to teach in the church. This definitely includes the apostles. They have the gift of teaching, and they need to be, because they've got this group of of 5,000 plus people who didn't know Jesus, and they don't know the words of Jesus, and there's no New Testament yet. So someone needs to be teaching them. And the danger is this. That in the process of trying to solve the problem of inequality in the church, they might have done it in a way that diverted or took away from the ministry of the word and prayer in the church. So in verse 4, the disciples say this, We will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And I kind of see these two going together because whenever you are uh, teaching the word of God, you absolutely cannot do it if you don't have a life of continual prayer going on. So the disciples say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to continue to teach and we're going to continue to pray. So the apostles, before they solve the problem, before they come up with a solution, it says that they affirm their focus. We're going to teach and we're going to pray. Because they understood the reality that teaching the word of God is a really big deal and it requires a lot of time. And the disciples need to stay focused. Now, when I read this passage, and actually I have to tell you this, so this passage was not part of the original series. We were going to go right past this and, and go to the next story. But I was reading this a few weeks ago and it just kind of resonated with me. And so I decided to teach on it because... For me, as a pastor who teaches on a regular basis, there's a few things that I know about preaching. One is I know that every weekend when I get up here, people want a meaningful sermon that is uh, biblically centered, that is doctrinally sound, that is accurate and well researched, and that's relevant. And I don't know what you think that means, but for me, it requires a lot of time. It means my week is filled with reading the Bible uh, again and again and again, uh, reading from other scholars, um, a lot of praying, for me, a lot of praying and meditating on the Word of God. And I like to do a lot of writing on Monday. So I have the, the better part of the rest of the week to do a lot of meditating and to listen to God and give him a chance to correct my thinking and where the sermon's going to go. I like to listen to people and hear what's going on in their lives and how the word can relate. And it requires a lot of thought. Now, here's one of the challenges that I always face as a teacher. It takes a lot of time for me to write a sermon. A lot of time. I'm probably a little slower than the average pastor. So it takes me a lot of time. But at the same time, there are all sorts of other really good things that I could be doing during the week. And sometimes I'll have people tell me, you know, pastor, I I think you should do more visitation. I think it would be good if you could figure out a way to visit everybody's home and this year, you know, and just spend some, and that would be good. And, And let me tell you, and that would be good. That would really be a good thing to do. There's a lot of really good things I could do. People say, you know, Pastor, you should do more counseling. Only people who I've never counseled say that, by the way, but, you know, people are always like, you should do more counseling, or, or or you should, I get this, you should attend more events, you should find a way to get around and mingle and mix a lot more, and, and you know, you should find a way to teach other classes and do other stuff, and I, I know I've heard stories of, of pastors who can, who, like, they spend 40 hours a week writing sermons, and another 40 hours a week doing visitation. They visit everyone in the church, they spend another 40 hours counseling, and, and another 40 hours repairing the cars of widows and remodeling people's kitchens and all that kind of stuff. And God bless them. They're, they're really effective people. But that's not me. That's that. On weeks when I preach, I have to spend most of my time studying and writing and praying to get up here and do what I do. And on the weeks that I don't preach, it's a free-for-all. Usually I fill up those weeks with meetings um, with Starbucks, uh, with you guys, uh, with people wanting want to get together, attending meetings, visiting with people requested, if I, if I can get up here and be involved in worship. And I, I really, really enjoy those times. But see, the apostles understood that God had called them to teach and pray, and that took a lot of time. And they were not about to let other people change their agenda based on what they thought they should be doing. And maybe you found in your own life that there's a lot of people who will tell you how you should live your life. But they were getting their cue from God. And even though there were a lot of good things they could do like feeding widows, they were going to stay focused. So before they they suggested a solution, the first thing they said was, here are the things that we affirm in our life. I would just ask, what about you? What has God called you to do in his church and in his kingdom? And maybe you're, the, you're a person who has the gift of teaching. And the question I would ask you is, are you doing that and giving the time that it takes and doing a good job? Or are you allowing people to distract you and keep you from using your spiritual gift? Maybe for some of you, you're, you're gifted at working with children. And maybe, you know, you've, you've been really distracted lately by people who tell you, you should be doing this or doing this. And my question would be, are you focused on that? Maybe for some of you, it's being a grow group leader in our church. That's That's huge. That's where we count on a a lot of pastoring and shepherding taking place. And if you're a grow group leader, undoubtedly, there are probably people who think you should be doing some other things, too. But I think Peter would come along and say, actually, before you take on anything else, the question you need to ask yourself is, am I giving the most attention to the thing that God's called me to do? In his church, beware of letting people distract you. You need to keep the main thing, the main thing in your life. So how did the church in Acts respond to this legitimate problem? Well, the first thing they did was they, they confronted the problem. And the second thing they did is they affirmed their priorities. They said, you know, this is what we need to be doing. And maybe for some of you here tonight, you know, maybe God's talking to you. And he's saying, I've gifted you and I've given you some talents. And, you know, you're so distracted right now, you're not doing those things. And maybe time to say no to some things so you can say yes to the main thing. Maybe for some of you, it's being a parent right now. Or maybe for some of you, it's, it's in your marriage. And you're so distracted. And God's calling you to get back to those things that he's gifted you to do. So they confronted the problem, they affirmed their priorities, and here's the third thing they did. Then they chose a team. So I really like how this went. You've got to, I kind of picture the meeting going this way. So there's murmuring and there's complaining and there's people and they're, they're not getting their food and what are we gonna do? And so the, you know they call an all church business meeting and everybody's there and, and Peter gets up and he says, look, I've heard some grumbling and I heard some complaining that some people are being overlooked. And so, you know, we just, here's the thing. We have to keep teaching and we have to keep praying, but we do think someone should do it and we think it should be you. <laughs> so they kind of turn it around and they say, hey, you guys need to come up With the solution in verse three, therefore, brethren, they say, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we may put in charge of the task. So they're just saying that taking care of widows was not just a leader problem. It was a problem for the whole church. And God's design for ministry in the church is that it be a team, that there be teamwork, that everyone have a part in coming up with a solution. Now, you may remember back in Acts chapter 2 that people started spontaneously selling their property, extra property and possessions, and bringing that money and giving it to the poor to feed people. And so at first, just people in the church would see the needs and they would just do it on their own. But apparently, the church has grown so big now that it's going to require a team of people to kind of administrate this, this thing that's going on. So they're going to they're get a team. And notice how they built a team. Peter didn't just... Peter didn't walk up and go, okay, we need seven guys to, to take care of widows. Do I have any takers? Is there anybody that's, you know, that has no spine and can't say no? Is there anyone that we can kick around and guilt into doing it? It's not what they do. And so often in ministry, churches go at it that way. Well, we're just desperate. We would take anybody to work in the nursery. Matthias will take anybody in junior high. It doesn't matter. Just anybody that's a warm body, and that's not what he does, and that's not what we do, and it's not what they do here. In fact, what they say is, it's absolutely an honor to aspire to work in any ministry. To work with middle schoolers is an honor. We are not that desperate. Actually, I don't think we are. We're not that desperate for middle school workers. Are we? we're not? We're not that desperate for people in the nursery. Now, it's an honor to be involved in this. It's something. It's something to aspire to. In fact. What they say here is they actually list out some qualifications. Not just anyone can do this job. They said, first of all, the person has to have a good reputation. In other words, they need to be known in the community as a trustworthy person. They're going to be handling a lot of money and a lot of food and responsibility. The second is they need to be full of the Holy Spirit. That is, they need to be people who are marked by being controlled. When people look at them, they think there's a person who's controlled by the Spirit of God, not just their own flesh. And the third thing is they need to be full of wisdom, or, or that is literally they need to have good sense. And so here's how they choose the team. The apostles say, you need to find seven guys, put together a nominating committee and, and come up with some nominees and then uh, select seven people. I, we don't know if they did a closed ballot or they voted online or they did kind of American Idol thing. I don't know what they did, but they, they picked seven guys and then they brought them to, uh, the, to the apostles. And it says in verse five, the statement found approval with the whole congregation. They said, hey, that's a great plan. And so they came up with seven men. It says they came up with these men. And here's the interesting thing. All seven men had Greek names. And that, when I saw that, I, it's so huge. You have to, you have to picture what's going on here, okay? They, they've got the Hellenistic Jews, all right, who are mostly Greek, and then they've got the, the Jews. And, and the Hellenists, they're the ones who, uh, they're the minority group, and they're the ones who have been overlooked. So when the congregation picks seven men, as far as we can tell by their name, these are all Greek names. So they're all Hellenist. So it's kind of interesting, the majority group in the church says, we'll trust the minority they're not just going to take care of the minority group. These guys are taking care of the whole group. They're taking care of the natives too. I'm just thinking, where in the world today do majority groups give all the authority to minority groups? It just doesn't happen. But these people are, they're, you know, the, the Hebrews come along and say, hey, we'll we, we trust them. And so these guys are put in charge. And it says, and, and these they brought before the apostles. And after praying, they, they laid their hands on them. Laying hands on people in ministry basically was, was uh, the idea that they were blessing them and that the leaders were identifying with them and they were, they were giving authority to them. Kind of made me think this week, maybe, maybe we should do that around here because we act sometimes like you know, we just need anybody in the nursery or, or, or anybody who can help with parking. Kind of interesting if we kind of did that, wouldn't it? If we showed that kind of, of intensity and, and approval. As we transfer blessing and identification and authority. And they had a responsibility. Their responsibility was, was to serve. Now this kind of. If you've studied this passage before. You'll know that a lot of people will say. And it might even say in your Bible. The first board of deacons. All right. Which is kind of a misnomer because nowhere in this passage does it say that these men were deacons. In verse one, it says that the ministry that was being overlooked was uh, the Greek word is uh, diakonia, which means it's just a, a generic Greek word that means to serve or it means ministry. And in fact, that word occurs 101 times in the New Testament. It's just a generic word that means to serve or to minister. Now, some people think these guys were deacons and maybe eventually this goes on to be the deacon board. But right now, these are just people who are going to serve widows. And and that's what it is. They're not deacons as we would think of them today. But what I think is interesting is what they, they didn't do. That the church didn't choose between feeding people physically and feeding people spiritually. Because Jesus taught them to do both. And both were crucial. And neglecting one of the ministries for the other could have undermined the church And it's amazing growth. And in order for the church to have unity and and outreach, the work needed to be shared. So this this new kind of teamwork begins to happen in the church as more people get involved in owning the church and in working in the church and using their gifts. And this is a model for today. Today. Because this is not the exception. What we see in the church is the rule. In fact, in 1 Peter, tells us this. It's speaking about every one of us who are believers. It says, God has given each of us a gift, a spiritual gift and ability from his great variety of spiritual gifts. And notice what he says. Use them well to serve who? One another. He says, God has given every one of us, all of us, a unique spiritual gift. And here's the reason he gave it. So we could use it here to serve each other. God's plan is not that we hire a few people to do most of the work. God's plan isn't even that we hire some people and then we have some teams and committees. God's plan is that every single person in the church will take ownership of the church and ownership of the ministry. And everyone will get involved. And that's what's beginning to happen in the church as they pick these teams. And I love when I see that happening in the church. And I see it happening here. In fact, a couple weeks ago, I was meeting with someone in church, and we were at Starbucks, and we're kind of having this discussion. And the discussion goes in a particular direction that I've heard before. And we're talking, and then the person says to me, you know, I really like Gateway, but we kind of there's, there's one thing about it I don't like. And, you know, I'm like, okay, so here we go. And, you know, I'll put on a happy face. And, okay, so what is it? You know, just hit me right here. And, and then they say, you know, what we really need in our churches, we we don't have a good worldview class for adults. We could really use a good worldview class. You know, something that you take after 101. And I was like, yeah, that would, be, that would be great. That would be amazing. And then he says, I've actually taught that many times. And I'd love to be able to teach that. And it was so great because I was just like, wow, not only did he have something that he saw could be better in the church, but he had a solution for it. And oddly enough, the solution was him. And that's so great when we see that, when we see that happening in the church, a couple, I guess it was maybe three weeks or so ago. Um, it was after church, uh, one, uh, I think it was Saturday night or maybe it was Sunday morning. It's all blurred to me, but we, we had been in the hospital and we'd had a lot of things going on and so, I had this uh, this grow group. Come and surround me after church. And if you were in that, I just, that, you know, surrounded me and said, What can we do to support your family? And I was just like, I had no idea. I'm like, I'm not sure. And, and they kind of asked me again, well, what can we do anything to support you? Because, you know, it seems like, so they saw a problem. A problem was our family's just going through a ton of stuff. How can we help you? And I was like, You know, I don't really know. And then they did like the smartest thing. They said, oh, we'll, we'll go talk to your wife. So they went and they, they found my wife, which is really smart. And then they talked and they that group ended up providing some meals for home and it was just so great to see the body in action to see people who, who saw a problem and, and they didn't ask you know wonder who else should do this they, they did it themselves Last weekend, in fact, the last couple weekends, uh, Pastor Bill and Pastor Ken graciously filled in at the pulpit and I did some worship leading. And so one of the cool things I got to do, which I I rarely get to do is um, during church, I got to kind of wander around the building and peek into some places and I got to go into the nursery which is super cool. The nursery is, a, is it's just the, the intensity in the nursery. That's the word I'll use. The intensity and the energy. And what's so great is when you walk in there and you look, what you realize is the nursery is the, is the answer to a problem that we had. And the problem is what do we do with our young children who who can't, Sit still for an hour, understandably, and who really would, it would be better if they were with a group of, of other kids their age, and, and they were with adults who ministered to them and who used scripture with them and who did Bible stories with them and sang with them. It was a problem, and there was a group of people in our church every weekend, a group of people who say, We have a problem, and we're going to solve that problem. We're going to get involved. I got to be over in kids' church last weekend and see some of the stuff again. There was a problem. Is there, would there be a better way for us to minister to our grade school children? And we had a group of people in our church that said, yes, there is a better solution for them. And we're going to do it ourselves. I got a chance to, to walk around the building and see Bible studies that are going on. And uh, maybe if, uh, if you were here uh, on Thanksgiving morning, the Run for the Hungry. Why do we run for the hungry? Because there's a problem. We have people in our community who need food. And so there's a group of people in our church who said, there's a problem and we want to solve it. And they came up with the solution. It's nuts. It, we're going to run on Thanksgiving morning. But it's, we, have, we have people in our church who, who look outside of our, of our country and say, we see there's, other, there's churches in other places like Nicaraguan and they need some help. That's a problem and they need some help and, and, and we're going to do it. And that's what's happening in the churches. There's this new kind of synergy, this teamwork. As people look around and say, what are the needs in our church? And what can I do to help that? Here's, what, here's how this whole section closes up in verse seven. It says this, that the word of God kept on spreading, right? Because the disciples are, are teaching and, and uh, the word with the church. And the number of disciples continued to increase, increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests who before this were opposing Christianity, it says we're now becoming obedient to the faith. So the result of this new teamwork is that the widows are being cared for in a much better way. The word and prayer continue to grow in the church. And there's newfound evangelistic power in God's church. And I'm telling you tonight that God is still doing that great work. He is still building his kingdom. He's still building synergy in the church as more and more people stand up and say, I see a need and I can do something about it. That is the church that God is building today right here. Let's pray together.